0: C colon backslash. Um, Dear slash Q. Windows. System. Projects. CD. Projects. C colon backslash projects. MKDIR. Podcasts. C colon backslash projects backslash podcasts. Dear. No such file or directory. MKDIR. Episode 2. Completed. Back when computers didn't understand us, we had to speak computer to them. Nowadays, it's the computers trying their best to pass as humans. In chatbots, we sometimes enter the uncanny valley of user interfaces. Maybe you've had it happen to you. You thought you were speaking with a human and it turned out to be a bot. Or the other way around. But it's not only chatbots and conversational agents that seem to have personality. It's in our design and copy as well. Think of the giant search bar prominently on the homepage of a website, asking you kindly how it can help you today. A button no longer tells you to click it, but for you to take its hand and discover new opportunities. And products, of course. It looks like you're trying to make a podcast. Would you like me to help? No, thank you, Clippy. I'm fine. The interfaces of software, platforms, websites and apps want us to feel connected with them. And so they try to mimic conversation and flows of human-to-human interaction, guiding you from the entry point to completing your task somewhere further up the road. They try to cheer you up, excite you, calm you down, or comfort you. But they can't learn to do this by themselves. That's where we, the content and UX design people, come in. Click here to learn more about this episode. Okay, click We have to teach the interface how to behave in different situations, how to respond to difficult questions and how to celebrate success. But we have to be careful to take all outcomes into account and to make sure no one feels excluded or hurt by them. Just slapping on some funny copy just isn't going to cut it. Meet Amy. Amy Thibodeau from Shopify shares her experiences, thoughts and opinions on how interface content is done and should be done. In this podcast, she'll talk about the evolution of UIs, the influence of chatbots, voice, tone, Shopify's content guide Polaris, and her
1: upcoming book.
0: Loading content. Dot, dot, dot.
1: So my name is Amy Thibodeau, and I'm currently a content strategy lead at Shopify, and I'm based in New York. But I started my career out working in communications roles in the museum industry in Canada, and um, eventually moved into agency work when I moved to London in the UK. And In this agency work, I found myself working on a content management system, which was the main product of the agency that I worked for. And they were um, basically redeveloping it. And because I was a communications person, I was the end user of that CMS. So I ended up just providing a lot of feedback about the interface content. And after leaving that agency, I fully transitioned into focusing on interface content which at that time, it was around 2010, was a fairly new discipline. Um, And so I traveled for a year and did that work with various clients. And then I went and spent four years at Facebook focusing on interface content and uh, left there about a year and a half ago and had been freelancing. And then in January, started at Shopify as a product content strategy lead. Thanks for joining us, Amy. As you've been working in this field for a while, have you seen a lot
0: of evolutions in the way we are working on user interfaces? Have you seen the field
1: and community grow? I have. You know, it's um, it's it's interesting how that community has changed a lot. When I first started doing it, I had this little blog. It's still online. It's Contentini. And the blog was, was basically me trying to figure out what I was supposed to do. I really... Didn't know what I was doing and used the blog as a bit of a sounding board to talk through some problems I was having um, and to get feedback from the community. And um, that's actually how Facebook found me. And in general, I've found a lot of success in just being pretty open and honest about where I'm grappling with new types of content problems Um, In the last year, I've written a couple pieces on Medium about chatbots, for example, and that was really part of that, an extension of that same process of me really trying to figure out how to do that kind of work because I was getting requests to do that kind of work. And again, it's sort of a new area and there isn't really a lot of, um, there aren't a lot of great models of how to approach it. So, um, those pieces on medium were really about me sharing about what I learned, but also, you know, getting feedback from the community. So I think, you know, from a community perspective, what I've seen is just a, an incredibly strong community of practitioners build up around this work, which is something that I think is fairly, is fairly new as of the last couple of years. You know, when I first started at Facebook, I was the fourth person on the team and we really struggled to find people to hire who had any kind of interface experience we had a, we found a lot of people who had content strategy experience but it was more long form traditional website content strategy Um, whereas now I feel like I'm part of this really strong community of people. So, um, we've got a content strategist, Facebook group that has a bunch of people who are working on interface content. Um, there's a really strong UX content, um, channel on Slack that we use that people use, um, that's run by Michael Matz. And, um, it's just, it's, it's just inspiring to hear the work that other people are doing. In terms of how interfaces have changed in the last few years, what I've really noticed is—and um, I blame Slack and Mailchimp for this—is <laughs> um, a real movement towards companies wanting to have a lot, um, a lot more personality in the interface. So, whereas we really used to think about interface content as something that was more of a utility to provide people with the information, the context that they needed to do the things that they wanted to do in the context of an interface. Um, I think that companies more and more see their interfaces as an extension of their brand and want to find ways of injecting that brand personality into the UI. And I can absolutely understand why they want to do that. And from a design perspective, I can understand why it feels nice to think about things like delight. How can we delight people in um, an interface? Um, But I do have some concerns about it um, because I think that when we do those things, we're thinking more about our company's needs or what makes us feel good as designers, um, and maybe a little bit less about what the humans need who are actually trying to do things in our interfaces. Generally speaking, I don't think people use software to find delight and to socialize. Um, they tend to use software to get things done. And so I think we have to be very cautious about um, how much we mediate these experiences With our big, fun, delightful personalities, um, because I think it can actually get in the way of letting people do the things that they're actually there to do. Companies choose to do that because I think it makes companies feel good. I think, um, you know, companies are very excited about their brand and about who they are, and they want to share that with their customers. And I think that's really a natural inclination. I think as designers, we like the idea of thinking that we're delighting people. Delight is one of those terms that people use a lot. Um, and, it's, and it's, we talk about it as though delight is something for our users, but in a lot of cases, it's something that just makes us feel good as people who are building these interfaces. Um, so I think that, that that's one question is why do companies want to do this? I think that the key thing with interfaces is that they have to be empathetic to the extent that they have to be considerate of the context of the user, um, and considerate of what the user wants. And I think that empathy is fundamentally a human trait, you know, um, our software is only as empathetic as we build it to be. Um, it isn't inherently empathetic. And so I think that, um, Empathy has to be built into these experiences from the ground up, but I actually think that sometimes Empathetic experiences are in conflict with this company desire to have big personality Because I actually don't think that big personality is always what users need or want or what's gonna most enable them to do the things that they need to do Part of um, designing uh, interfaces with empathy means understanding how people talk, understanding the kinds of language that your customers use, and understanding their key tasks and building around those things. Um, and, you know, so when I was at Facebook, one of the things that we worked on was Facebook's first set of content standards. And because Facebook is translated around the world to all kinds of people, I think, I don't know what the stat is now, but at a certain point in time is like one out of every seven people in the world have a Facebook account. Um, And so when you're developing content for that scale of um, that number of people, you really have to think about ways that you can um, pick language that is pretty commonly understood. And that actually means not using a ton of big personality. It means like not using colloquialisms. It means not using um, terminology that's very regional or local to where you are because if you do use those things it's much much harder to translate Um, and so i know facebook has probably changed their philosophy quite a bit since i've left but when i was there one of our core fundamental principles with voice was to try to make it as universal as possible which really meant being cautious about when and how we were injecting personality and at Shopify, we have this range of, of merchants with different uh, levels of, of experience and knowledge. So, you know, really thinking about, um, you know, how do they speak from the individual person who maybe makes uh, scarves, knits scarves during the winter and sells them on their Shopify store to the large company that maybe has multiple warehouses and is shipping you know sometimes millions of dollars of of goods to people all around the world and and you know thinking about how we address those different types of people in an interface is is definitely a challenge but i think what is fundamental to me is that almost all people including those big complex companies prefer things to be easy you know, they're not looking for additional complexity in their tasks. They want things to be easy also so that they can move on to other things. And so I think wherever possible, wherever we can simplify our terminology, wherever we can adopt a more straightforward tone, I think that that is kind of a net win for all of our users, no matter where they are or what they understand or how experienced that they are. Would you say
0: that, chatbots and conversational agents kind of catalyzed the growing need for conversational UI and personality and UI in general?
1: I think so. I think so chatbots seem like the shiny new thing right now, you know? Um, And it's, what's, what's interesting to me is when I was freelancing before I started at Shopify, I just had such a huge increase in the number of companies that were approaching me and wanting me to work on chatbots. Um, And they were just really passionate about this notion that it was a more human way for their customers to find what they were looking for and to communicate. But actually, in actual fact, you know, chatbots currently, for the most part, they're just conversation trees. They're phone trees that, you know, you can sort of think of them like that. You basically map out a conversation and it is um, not actually an intelligent conversation. The chatbot isn't actually responding intelligently, for the most part, to how people respond Um, it is just a, it is just a phone tree. And you'll notice this if you use many chatbots. Um, that in a lot of cases, the chatbot doesn't even let the user respond with their choice. The chatbot will actually present a list of menu items within the context of the chat and say, like, tap on the one that you want or type yes, type no, type maybe. And so, that is actually not very conversational at all. Um, so it's sort of interesting to me that uh, some the thing that people are actually trying to achieve, which is a more human conversational experience, and the actual experience that we're often building, those things are not actually aligned. Um, Yet, I think that we're definitely moving towards true artificial intelligence, which I think has a whole range of additional complexities and possibilities. Um, But for the most part, we're actually not there yet. So when people would come to me and say, oh, you know, we really want to do this chatbot, I think the first question that I always asked and that I would encourage anybody to ask in this circumstance is, why do you think this is the best medium for the people who use your product to interact with you? Why do you think this is useful for them? You know, what is the purpose that this serves? What is the what is the task that this speeds up or enables? Um, and if they don't have a good answer for that, then they probably shouldn't build a chatbot. <laughs> um, but a lot of people want to because they're just excited and it's sort of a new, it's a new shiny kind of technology. I think there are certain tasks that chatbots are helpful for, genuinely helpful for. Um, one of those tasks, I think, is is as a way of synthesizing huge amounts of data through some natural language processing. So um, there's a project that I worked on last year uh, before I joined Shopify that I can't give too many specifics about because it actually didn't ever launch. Um, but it was an example of um, of what I think is an interesting uh, utility for for a bot, which was uh, people would go into an art gallery. And it was a huge art gallery, and there were thousands of potential paths that they could take. Um, and they often didn't have a lot of art language. You know, they weren't artists, they weren't academics. And, um, so they would come into a gallery, this gallery, and have absolutely no idea what they should go and see and, um, and even how to find what was there. Um, and so, this chatbot that we designed what it did was it would ask them a few questions to help them design their experience so it might ask them how long do you want to be in the gallery today Um, it might ask them are you here with young children are you do you have small children with you and then it might ask them a range of things like what types of objects are you interested or what type of art do you like you know and they could respond If they wanted to, they could respond with the name of an artist or they could respond as simple as like, I like painting or I like drawings or I like watercolors or I like landscapes, which is terminology that most museum visitors had. Um, And then what would happen is the chatbot would, would use this to synthesize a whole range of different information that it had access to about what was available in the gallery and it would actually present the visitor with a customized tour based on their interests and based on um, their circumstances. Um, And then the V2 of that project was going to be because this was obviously you did all this on your phone as a visitor. um, The V2 was going to be to put beacons around the art gallery so that as people were actually moving through this tour that the bot had generated for them, Um, the bot could actually kind of interject with interesting things that were nearby or some additional details about objects they were looking at. And so that to me felt like a good use for bots, because again, what are the other ways that people have to synthesize all of that, those different types of information, right? If you don't know what you're looking for, it's really hard to find it. Um, And it's hard to find it, especially if you have limited vocabulary to describe what you're looking for. what was really important about building that experience was thinking about all the different kinds of language a person, just a lay person, might use to describe what they might want to see in an art gallery, and to create sort of a thesaurus or tagging structure around that language, so that we could present them with relevant options for a range of different type of terminology that they might use. Um, so. You know, in theory, I guess you could maybe use a search box to do this kind of thing. But if you've ever tried to look for something on Google, um, when you're not exactly sure what it's called, it can be actually really hard to turn up the right result. Um, I think the other thing that chatbots are really good at, the other task, is uh, automating relatively simple tasks that take up a lot of time. So um, an example of a bot that I think does this really well is uh, it's called Amy. And uh, what Amy does is you install Amy and Amy works with your email system. And so if you are trying to arrange a meeting time with somebody, you give Amy access to your calendar and you copy Amy in when you send an email to somebody that you want to meet with. And then Amy will ask for access to their calendar. And if that person grants access, then Amy will basically email that person back and forth for you um, and suggest the right times to meet. So based on when you're both free in the calendar, um, and we'll come back and say, okay, the meeting is set, you know, you are going to get together on this date at this time, and it will be put in your calendar. Um, So that's an example of a task that can be painful to have to do, you know, when you're emailing back and forth, and you can't see what Somebody's calendar says. Um, and Amy actually, I think, really enables that in a pretty nice way. Um, another example of that type of a uh, utility chat bot that I think works pretty well, and disclaimer this is a Shopify product, uh, is Kit. And Kit is a marketing bot. So, so a lot of the people who use Shopify, a lot of the merchants, they are just single person shops. You know, it's one person who is ordering or making the things that are being sold. They're managing the store. They're doing all their marketing. They're basically packaging up goods in boxes and putting them in the mail. They're doing everything. And so what Kit does is it automates some of their marketing activity. So they can enable Kit on their store um, as an app. And then Kit will communicate with them in Facebook Messenger and make suggestions about things they might want to post about, um, ads they may want to create, it can also create Instagram ads, um, and just kind of automate a variety of these tasks that once you start doing them, are not that difficult to do, but that are pretty time consuming. Um, And so Kit works to make that pretty, um, pretty easy for people. And so I think that's another good example of a task that is fairly simple, but that is very time consuming that a bot can help with. You mentioned Amy, an agent with a female name um what's your stance on applying a gender to a bot i feel very strongly about this subject i have very strong opinions um on this so i do think it is notable that so many personal assistant bots are by default female and i think that that is just a really good example of um human fallibility (laughs) um representing itself in the software that we build i think I don't know actually where Amy is built, but, you know, the vast majority of uh, software experiences are still being built in Silicon Valley, which is a a very small little place in the world. And the vast majority of them are being built by, you know, young white men. (laughs) And I think that it's very easy, even though I believe most of these people are very well-intentioned, I think it's very easy to bake our biases, you know, Prejudices, our assumptions into the software that we build. And I think one example of that is in the fact that the vast majority of personal assistant uh, bots are um, represented as female. I think the fact that we even feel the need to uh, pick a gender for our bots is really an interesting thing because. I think, as we've seen um, through how concepts, social concepts of gender have evolved in society, I don't think gender is a, is a totally fixed thing. You know, I think there's this spectrum, and we all live somewhere on this spectrum. Um, and the fact that we, generally speaking, one of the first things that we want to do is assign a gender to a bot and then base a character around a gender, a fixed gender, um, I think it's pretty problematic. Um, the fact that so much of this software is being developed in these very kind of monocultural um bubbles where um it's not really it's not real life you know i I worked in silicon valley for a few years and um you know i would get up in the morning i would get on a really cushy shuttle with internet and it would take me to work and then i would be at this beautiful campus Um, All day long, where people fed me and did my laundry, and you know, I could go for a massage, and then I would, yeah, 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 it was great. And then I would get back on the shuttle, you know, and I would go home at the end of the day. And the result of that, though, is that you end up actually spending um, very little time with people outside of the people who. Also enjoy this privileged life, um, and so it's really easy to um, to forget that that is not actually how most people live their lives. Most people don't have the newest iPhone the minute it gets released, or the most powerful Mac computer. Um, and you know, and that reality is is really. Uh, it's easy to forget that that situation where so much software is being built is actually you know. Um, it's not like real life for the vast, vast, vast majority of people in the world. you know the the stuff that we're building, it almost serves as a proxy for human interaction. Um, and so we have a real responsibility and opportunity to be really conscious of when and where and how we're baking in these like problematic assumptions and unintentional bias into these things that we're building, even thinking about things like um, how much bandwidth are apps take up when people use their phones. I mean, that can be really important. You know, around the world, uh, data isn't always cheap and accessible the way it can be um, in places like where I live, which is New York City. You know, I have this plan where I pay, I think, $60 a month, and I have really fast data everywhere in North America, everywhere in Europe. I basically just don't have to think about it. Um, but that is not actually the case in the majority of the world. Um, and so you have to make sure to question those types of assumptions, even in terms of how you structure um, the data and the size uh, and the speed of and responsiveness of your apps.
0: Voice and tone is a very important aspect in your work. How
1: do you approach voice and tone for your clients? I'll start by saying that I think of voice and tone as as two different things. I approach them differently. So I think of voice as the the, the personality, um, the thing that is fixed, the thing that is always there that um, the user can kind of rely on. So. Um, I think that's very tied in the sense of a company. I think that's very tied to brand. And I think as a company, if you don't know who you are and who your brand, what your brand is, I think it's, it's problematic because I think that's when you see content that feels all over the place, you know, in one place, like, you know, in a, in an error message, you might have a silly joke. Um, and then it may be really formal on a marketing page. Um, and so I think that's a really good example of not knowing yourself. And I think the first step is really to spend time getting to know who you are as a company and what your values are. And, and I think importantly tying that to what you're trying to enable with your product. So at Shopify, um, we really think of ourselves as like a friendly business coach. You know, we want to encourage merchants to um, do the things that they'll need to do to be successful. Um, but we want to do that in a way that feels um, feels genuine, that feels positive, um, and we never want to make people feel bad about, um, you know, when they don't, uh, don't achieve everything that they want to achieve right away. We want to help them get to the place that they want to be. Um, on the other hand, the way I think of tone is really what are, the, what are the different ways that you respond to the various emotions people will be feeling when they encounter you and the various contexts that they will be in. So um, thinking about tone in terms of how do you respond in an error message versus in a success message, those two things should be really different. Um, and you can always sound like yourself but the way you respond needs to be different. And I think at the heart of that is really baking in thinking about user context and user feelings, baking that into every step of your product development process. Um, So we always think about, you know, who are we as Shopify? We wanna always sound like ourselves, but importantly, how are people likely to be feeling in this particular part of the experience and responding to that? And so, Some of the methods that we use to get at that is, for example, in content reviews or design crits. You know, one of the questions that is often asked is, what is the most important thing that a person needs to know in this part of the experience? How are they likely to be feeling and how are we responding to that feeling? Um, And I think just getting in the practice of always asking those questions um, of content people, designers, product managers, and making sure that the problems that you're solving are framed around those kinds of questions. Make sure that the way you're approaching tone is baked in at pretty much every step of the way. Um, The voice thing is... in my experience is much, much harder because it requires alignment from so many different parts of your company. Um, and it's, it's also tricky because I think, you know, different parts of an organization value different kinds of things. Um, so, you know, at Shopify, we work really closely with our brand team to really understand how we're, how we're representing who we are as a company out in the world and making sure that we're tying that back into how we speak in our interface. Um, But what we always know is how we want people to feel. And that's, I think, what grounds our use of voice and tone throughout all of our experiences. Can you map out the process for me? So I think the first thing that I would want to do is get together with um, a bunch of different people in a company. And I actually did a workshop like this this summer where we brought in people from the brand team, the marketing team, we brought in product designers, um, we brought in some PR people, and we just got together and actually talked about different attributes. You know, what are the adjectives that we would all use to describe both what we are and what we're not? So sometimes it's helpful to actually think about both of those things at the same time, you know. So if we are um, encouraging what are we not like are we you know we don't maybe we don't want to be we don't want to be like over the top we don't want to be like a cheerleader so what are the boundaries of that attribute that we want to be and so so this day resulted in a bunch of sticky notes that we had up on the wall and actually some really importantly some really good conversations about where there was conflict Um, Because there were a few points of conflict where not everybody in the room agreed on a couple of key points. And so then it's really important to dig in to those key points and really understand the heart of that conflict. Um, And often it has to do with organizational silos and ownership. Um, This was the company that I did this with is a company that's about 150 years old. And although they had previously had this sense of um, what their brand and voice was, it was very much tied to a director that had run their company for a long time and then had left. So when this person left, they felt like they had lost their brand voice in a way. Um, And so they were looking to articulate that in a way that that was um, not tied to just this one person. Um, but it was really interesting to see where the, the points of of tension or conflict were and to dig into those. And I think like really, really important is to layer on conversations with actual customers and to find out what number one, what they're looking for from the company, what attributes they value and where they see a disconnect between what the company says they are and what the company is actually providing. So for example, um, it would be really easy for... I'm going to use Wells Fargo as an example. I'm going to pick on them. They're my bank. I've never done work for them. So I know nothing about what they actually do internally. But Wells Fargo in the last year has had a huge conflict where um, they were found to basically be committing fraud in order to increase their sales numbers. And the result of that was that um, a bunch of customers were charged amounts of money that they never agreed to. And it's it's been a pretty... Um, pretty big deal for Wells Fargo, right? So Wells Fargo, if you look at their material that they produce, their emails that they send out, if you look at their interface, they're often trying to interject this little bit of levity um, and this like really over the top friendliness into their experiences. Now, overcompensating and as a customer, that rings especially false to me because that is not how they've conducted themselves. And so I think it's really, really important that once you've established a list of like key adjectives that define your voice, to then take that to customers and get a sense of whether that's how customers feel, where does it feel disingenuous? And I don't think that there's any problem with businesses having aspirational goals about who they want to be as a brand. I don't think that there's anything wrong with saying, with, even with a company like Wells Fargo saying, you know, we really want to be... Trustworthy. We want to. We want to. We want our customers to feel a lot of trust and confidence in in us, and we accomplish the, that by being friendly, by being straightforward, by being all of these things. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, um, but I do think that companies need to be very realistic about how they get to that point, point. and if they are not at that point. They're not going to get to that point by pretending that they are because customers can smell um, disingenuousness from from a pretty far distance. Um, So I think getting that customer feedback is really important. And I also think it's important as a way of resolving some of the conflicts that sometimes come up when we're discussing things like voice um, and brand at a company, Um, because People may feel certain ways, but I think customers—the way they interpret it—is actually a really great way to make decisions about what the reality of the situation is. So Shopify, when I started in January, they had, um, you know, a well-established voice. Um, you know, I think they're still thinking about exactly who they are from a brand perspective, um, but from a product perspective, we have a pretty strong voice. Um, we've had a lot of requests from people at the company um, about. Having more personality in the interface, that's something that's come up a bit uh, for the content strategy team. And so one of the things that we've been working towards is actually not changing our voice, but looking at the boundaries of tone within the project or the product. Um, so, you know, where we have the most personality, what does that look like? What are some specific examples? When we say that we want to be like a helpful coach, you um, what does that mean specifically and what does that not mean? And we do that by actually writing content that demonstrates those attributes. Um, And so last week we launched our public facing style guide, um, which people can view at polaris.shopify.com. And in there we've really um, outlined how we approach voice and tone within the product. And we're continually working on evolving that. And I think that's the other thing that is important to say is that I don't see uh, voice and tone as an exercise that is ever really fully complete. I think that as you get new information and as your product and your company evolves, I think you need to um, kind of revisit it. And particularly on the tone scales, as you develop different kinds of experiences, such as, for example, a chatbot versus Um, you know, an admin interface where you're managing settings, I think you have different opportunities to push the boundaries of your tone in different directions. We have a really huge network of partners who develop apps, themes, and other experiences that plug into Shopify. And what we really wanted to do is to help them build seamless experiences. So, You know, we don't want people who are using Shopify to really feel the boundaries between the Shopify experience and the experience of a partner app that they might be using in conjunction with their Shopify store. Um, So part of releasing this was really giving them some really good tools so that they could build things in a similar way to how we build things so that they could build things that sort of look the same share similar content values and principles and so that they could use our components to um, speed up how um, how they were building. So that was the first thing. And I think the second thing is that, you know, Shopify is a pretty humble Canadian company. You know, we don't always do a great job of talking about the stuff that we're doing. And actually, you know, there's some really, really strong work going on at Shopify on the UX team. And I think one of the examples of that is, the way that we've tied ux and content guidelines to every single component so um, you'll see a lot of component libraries that come out and they're great um, but it will just present you sort of with a button and a functional component but it doesn't really explain how you should think about using a button or um, how you would make a decision between using a neutral button or a, a primary button or a secondary button or why you would choose a button versus a link um, or why you might use a radio button versus a checkbox. You know, there are all these kinds of decisions that you have to make when you're choosing how to put these components together. And we've really baked those UX guidelines down to the component level. And we've also included content guidelines at every component level so that people really understand how to use those components, how to think about those components and how to write content for those components. And so I think making that public, um, we were just really excited to share how we approach that because I do think it's, it's quite unique um, to be so focused on um, the experience side, even when it comes to how technical components snap together. Great. We'll put a link to Shopify's Polaris in the show notes of this podcast, which you can
0: find at efficientlyeffective.fm.
1: Okay, to close off, you have a book in the making. I do. <laughs> the working title is uh, "From From Buttons to Bots," and it's all about interface content. So um, the audience for the book is really not necessarily people who write. To be honest with you, there are a ton of people like engineers, um, developers, designers, product managers, uh, people who find themselves working on product content without the benefit of having a content strategist or a a word person with them. And, you know, I feel really strongly that um, those people need to not just learn how to write interface content, but need to learn how to think about it and think about its function. So an example that I always use is, um, you know, we still online often run into error messages that will say something like, error 1795-B, you know, check your system or something. Um, And that doesn't mean anything to most people. And so if the engineer or whoever wrote that content understands how to think about an error message and the purpose that it serves, whether or not they can write perfect prose is sort of besides the point. If they can communicate what's most important to the user, that error message will be a lot better. So thinking about what is the error message supposed to do and what does the user need? So it needs to communicate what happened and it needs to tell the person how to fix it. Those things seem really obvious, but the fact that we see so many bad error messages online um, make me think that actually it's not that obvious. Um, the other thing that I think is important to consider is that not everybody is comfortable with language, you know? Um, it's If you're not somebody who likes to write, the idea of writing can be pretty intimidating. Um, And so the book is really going to be written um, with with people in mind who maybe aren't comfortable with words, aren't comfortable with language, but find themselves having to write anyway um, so that they can hopefully build up some confidence and skills there. Um, And the goal there is to just have better product content that is clearer and easier to use and helps people do what they want to do. Sounds great. Can people listening to this podcast help you in any way in the process? Absolutely. I mean, I'm always looking for great stories, um, and examples to integrate into the book. Um, and so, yeah, I would love to hear from people who have examples of either really great experiences, experiences that aren't so great and particularly experiences that, um, you know, have been meaningful for them. So one of the things that I've written recently is called dedication and it's, um, about one of the reasons that I'm passionate about this topic and it's about my mother and she um, became ill very suddenly last summer. And I suddenly found myself having to navigate through essentially horrible software to try to find answers for things. Um, And, and it made a terrible experience um, more painful than it already was. And it was already pretty painful. Um, And so, you know, I, that's an example of a personal experience that I had where, you know, software made a real difference to me. And in this case, it was a negative difference. So, you know, I would love to hear from people about where software has really helped them or, or really been difficult for them and what that's meant. Because I actually think it's, it's easy for us to, to think about these experiences as trivial, um, that they don't mean very much to people. But actually, they do. Um, even if we're talking about something like um, the ability to check into your flight. I mean, it's definitely not at the same level maybe as um, having to navigate uh, online for my mother's illness, but, um, you know, checking into a flight can be an incredibly stressful experience for people. You know, um, people are afraid of flying sometimes. You know, they go to check in and they don't even know if they have a seat or they get some error message that doesn't help them. I mean, all of these experiences matter, if they matter to the end user. And um, so I'm really interested in highlighting stories about how software has mattered to people. Um, I'm on Twitter uh, at Amy Thibodeau, exactly how my name is spelt, if people want to reach out there. I'm also active on the Facebook Content Strategist group. That's it for episode two of Efficiently um, Effective. And Thanks yeah, for listening. I, would just, I would just love to talk to people.
0: That's it for episode two of Efficiently Effective. Thanks for listening. If you want to help us in creating and growing this show, all you have to do is tell someone about it. Your coworker, your boss, or maybe your Twitter audience. Send them over to our website or have them subscribe to our podcast feed. We'll be very grateful if you do this. Our website can be found at efficientlyeffective.fm and our Twitter handle is EffectivePod. Thanks to Amy Thibodeau for taking the time and joining us on the show. Also thanks to Roel Fiedler for technical help, Saunders Poolspool for editing, technical and mental support. Creative Commons licensed music by Kevin MacLeod at incompetech.com. Efficiently Effective is a production by The Duchess. You're
1: about to publish this podcast to your audience. Are you ready? Yes. Let's go. High fives.